Hello and welcome to the Wild Enrichment Podcast. My name is Kyle Banton-Jones and I'll be your host. The Wild Enrichment Podcast is a show about animal welfare, training, enrichment, and everything in between. Each episode, we will be exploring concepts surrounding behavioral husbandry and the ever-advancing field of animal welfare, from interviews with real animal care professionals to educational episodes about new concepts in animal care. This is the Wild Enrichment Podcast. Enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Wild Enrichment Podcast. Uh, Today, I am joined uh, by Nikki Plaskett. Uh, and she is uh, the CEO of Shaping Behavior and uh, a very seasoned animal uh, trainer. So we're very, very excited to to have her on to talk about all things animal training, uh, the welfare implications of that. Um, and uh, Nikki, uh, thank you for, for coming on. We're very excited to have you. Thanks for inviting me. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, so, uh, do you want to sort of give people a little bit of an idea of your your background and how you sort of uh, got involved in this whole industry up until like you know becoming a, a sort of full time training consultant? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, I have worked in zoos and aquariums for over twenty years now, which makes me old um <laughs> which is sad for me but anyway um <laughs> my career is actually i've been really lucky i've managed to work with some um really well-known um organizations and some phenomenal animal trainers as well in the field so i consider myself to be really lucky to be where i am um my first sort of zoo job was actually in a an aquarium um here in the uk and they did a lot of seal rescue and rehab uh so i ended up working learning all about all the fish that we had to care for but really got very involved in the um rescue and rehabilitation of common and gray seals that we have native to the uk and that was really cool for me because at that point in my career i well i was sort of sixth form age uh, doing my a levels doing my exams and i was intending to go to veterinary school mm. and become a vet that's you know that was what i wanted to do it's what i'd always wanted to do um and really the step that i took uh, working at the sea life center was supposed to put me you know on the right track to get a really good application in but actually what happened instead was that I realized I could work with animals in an environment where I was caring for them, looking after them, learning about them and teaching people about them without spending another five years mm-hmm. at university. And of course, that's not supposed to invalidate going to university and getting the degree um, and becoming a vet. But actually, I thought, oh, well, maybe I could do this for a little while and see where that takes me instead. Um, after working at the Sea Life Center for about a year and a half um, and learning lots of things there. I got a job at ZSL London Zoo. Um, really lucky. I, you know, I managed to get straight in onto their seasonal team, uh, their seasonal events team, which was the team that did the animal training and the shows. And at that time, London Zoo, I suppose they were probably doing training across the other teams, but it wasn't really something that was talked about. So working on the section that I did, that was the team that really got involved in training and presenting animals to the public. So we were concentrating on um, teaching and cueing natural behaviours that we could Mm. then use in presentations, shows, demonstrations to educate the public about those species in the wild. Um, And I had a great time. I learned loads of things um, and worked with a bunch of animals I'd never worked with, worked with some awesome animal keepers and trainers and learned a huge amount about you know where I wanted to go with my career and um, I actually I, I stayed at London on and off 
<laughs> I left a couple of times, but I went back. My career there spanned about 10 years um, and I left in 2011 um, to take undertake an opportunity with Steve Martin from Natural Encounters. Um, so Steve used to run this, the State Fair of Texas, the Birds mm. of the World show. Every year he did this for 25 years and would take on interns from all over the world, people with some animal training knowledge and skill that wanted to learn new things. Um, and basically I got to go and work with him and his team for a season. I left London Zoo, I went off and I did this and I came back and really I think that sort of paved the way for my next, my next career move. Um, because I ended up working at a zoo here in the UK, Paradise Wildlife Park, and running their bird team. And, you know, myself and the, the team that I created around me, we sort of revolutionised the, the care, the welfare, the training of those birds and completely changed the way that they had historically been flown and trained. Um, and, you know, sort of paved the way almost for the force-free um, movement particularly with raptors here in the uk um at the time everybody was still tethered mm. and you know lots of equipment lots of training rooted in negative reinforcement um and i kind of went well why why do we need to do that you know if we can fly parrots and softbills and yeah. cranes and waterfowl and all of these other species without having them tied down why can't we do it with birds of prey and um spoiler alert you can <laughs> so we started doing that <laughs> we started doing that at paradise and um you know we transitioned our collection of birds of prey to be all completely housed in aviaries free lofted flying free in and out of their aviaries and doing some really cool behaviors um you know without having that initial restraint period um and we took off their anklets and jesses and just flew them using telemetry so that we could keep keep them safe basically mm. if they disappeared out of sight um but that was really eye-opening for me and I think working with birds in a free flight setting definitely makes you a better trainer right oh, yeah. your observation skills have got to step up like a hundred percent because if you make a mistake then that bird can go anywhere you know <laughs> so I had a great time working with those guys um and I left there in 2021 to set up Shape and Behaviour so in a nutshell I, I did work at a couple of other collections and in, in the interim but that's sort of the the main overview mm. of uh, my career up to now <laughs> yeah yeah no that's that's fantastic I have several questions about uh <laughs> some of the stuff you've just said uh one of them being, you know, you've, you've been lucky. You said you were lucky enough to, to work with some great trainers and, and sort of those mentors in your career. And you're obviously, you've obviously made a huge impact in, in the sort of, you know, general, um, you know, sphere of training and you're continuing to do that. How much, how much of, uh, you know, your sort of success would you attribute to the mentors that you had versus some sort of inherent, uh, interest or, or, or talent around training? Um, I mean, I think that you should be actively trying to learn something from everybody that you work with, whether they're more or less experienced than you are. Mm. I think everybody has always got something that they can teach you. Um, and I would say that having been lucky enough to work with lots of different people, some of those who are, you know, phenomenal icons in the field, you know, people like like Steve Martin and like Jim Mackey from London Zoo and Mark Haben, who was also one of my initial mentors when I first started working at London. Um, 
and all the way through to you know Tom Clark who is he's now running the team that I left at Paradise I uh, hired him as my deputy I Mm. stole him from another team as Mm. my deputy and you know worked with him solidly for five years in order to get to the point where I was so happy with how he was going to run the section that I felt safe to leave the section and the birds in his care Mm. um I think that yes I always had an interest in working with animals yes I always had a passion for animal training from the moment that I first learned about it but being able to work with and learn from some amazing people in person virtually by reading their books watching podcasts or Mm. watching interviews and listening to podcasts you know it's it's been a really fantastic step steps rather on my journey to get to where I am yeah and I think it's so important for you know oftentimes like uh you see you know sort of that dynamic in teams when like less experienced keepers join teams like it's a little bit like it can be perceived as a little bit of a drag to a lot of the mm-hmm. the staff that's already there. And that's, there's that sort of animosity between the two. And it's, I think it's so important for people to like really take a step back and like try to be uh, a mentor, especially like a mentor that you might've wished you had at the time in mm-hmm. your career, because you can make such a difference. And that person will get so much better at their job and, and learn so much when you're sort of uh, positioning yourself as that as that mentor and it's uh, yeah. you know so so important to do absolutely i mean positive reinforcement training works for all species right yeah. so we're using it with our people too sure <laughs> does yeah yeah and uh you know I, I noticed you sort of started in the marine mammal sort of sphere that seems to be mm-hmm. like very very common for uh you know particularly people that have um you know sort of uh, you know, cut their teeth in, in that sort of training sphere and are considered like animal trainers and you sort of transition to birds. What, what, you know, sort of, have you seen any like sort of parallels between the two and like, and like, why do you think sort of so many people start in marine mammal training? So to be perfectly honest with you, I don't really consider that I started in marine mammal training because we didn't do any training with mm. those animals. You know, we were we were rescuing abandoned seal pups off the coast and rehabilitating them and releasing them. So actually, other than a couple of seals that were non-releasable that really weren't trained to do anything particularly other than swim to us for food as we did a talk about them like we didn't even do any husbandry training with them back in the day so actually I consider that really I learned how to train from working with birds and the mammals that we had on the team at Mm. London Zoo Um, I think that was really my first insight I think the working with the seals was more about just having access to working with these animals and the the rehabilitation side of it was something that was really interesting to me because I wanted to go into veterinary science Mm. I all of a sudden found myself in a position where we were medicating animals which obviously as a zookeeper is something that you do frequently throughout your career but as somebody who was you know 16 17 years old like thinking that the only way that you ever would be able to give an animal an injection or medication was by being a vet. That I think was something that was really eye-opening to me. Of course, we were under veterinary supervision, you know, not just let loose randomly. Um, But that I think to me was sort of more influential in my step towards being a zookeeper. And it just so happened that the team that I joined were, was the team that was doing the most training Mm. on at the zoo at the time and um, when I was at London I didn't I didn't stay on that show's team I, I worked on the show's team for maybe nearly six years and then I transitioned over to one of the mammal teams and mm. did 
a lot of husbandry training with the species that we were working with, you know, like ultrasound training for spider monkeys that couldn't be split from their family group and injections, insulin injections for a diabetic Diana monkey, because, you know, I ended up working with a lot of primate species. Um, but yeah, I think I, I can't tell you why lots of people start out in marine mm -hmm. mammals and then shift to somewhere else. But I, I'm not convinced that that's really what I did, although I did mm -hmm. work with fish and seals initially. I think it was that was more sort of a step into the zookeeping field and then sort of working with birds, I think. And actually, I think that probably made me the trainer that I am today, because like mm -hmm. I said, you know, when you make a mistake and you're working with marine mammals yep they can absolutely be mad at you but they can swim away and they're still contained by a pool no matter how big it is whereas mm -hmm. a bird bye yeah. it can just disappear <laughs> wherever that wants to go yeah. and you're like oh okay what did i do wrong Wait, was there when you started at zsl and sort of began uh, your whole training journey was there a specific scenario or like animal uh, that you remember that w when like you know, the whole concept of positive reinforcement, like really clicked for you where you're like, oh, like this is, this is what everyone's been talking about. And this is what I can do with, you know, every single animal that I work with. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there were probably a couple. Um, first off, I was working with a, a little Lana Falcon um, called Hector. Oh, he was a dream. And I did a lot of the really early work with that bird. Now I, I did do it using traditional falconry methods, you know, because that was all that I knew at the time. And so he was tethered and he was manned. And, you know, in that traditional, you hold him on the glove and you walk around and get him used to everything. Um, we had a lot of really good success with that bird and flying him free was brilliant. Um, but actually, not very long after we started flying him free, I moved across to another team. And when I was suddenly working with primates and larger mammals and things which, you know, you you couldn't restrain them, even if you wanted mm -hmm. to, to do, you know, any training, I suddenly thought, well, hang on a minute. Why are we, why are we doing this with some animals and not all animals? Like maybe there's a way that we can transition to not doing it with any animals. Um, and yes, a lot of the species that I was working with are, you know, in a different health and safety category than, yeah. than birds of prey are. But I don't really think that that should matter. I mm -hmm. think, you know, just because you can restrain something, yeah. does that mean that you should? 100%. Um, no, is my answer. Yeah. Um, and so I think working with the the primates in particular, um, and I never really thought of myself as a primate keeper. It was mm -hmm. never a, an area that I thought I would move into. Um, but actually working with particularly the spider monkeys, you know, there was, we had a group of four spider monkeys and they, the two boys had a, a history of not wanting to be shut into a certain area. And then there was an old female who just stayed out of the way. And then the female that needed to have the ultrasound training done. So it was a real problem solving because I, I couldn't shut any slides. I couldn't shut anybody away from each other. So they had to physically still have access to each other, but be, trained to stay away from each other mm. and that like really got me thinking about well how do you do this if you can't physically separate these animals and I think working with her and in that environment really helped um to sort of hone hone that skill for me mm. and then obviously moving on to the the Diana monkey with diabetes you know like how do you teach something you're going to give it an injection every single day mm. like we're not talking once a year vaccinations mm -hmm. but every day you yeah. needed to give this monkey an injection and she had to come over and stand her side of the mesh and let you do it mm -hmm. like that was 
well I'm I feel like very lucky to have been able to be a part of that and you know to have been successful in in teaching her that behavior yeah absolutely because because so many of the (laughs) so many of those medical behaviors like you're really sort of relying on uh making sort of like deposits in the like trust bank every time and like not actually doing the injection and then when you do Mm -hmm. the injection like you take a couple steps back and then you're Mm -hmm. working up to it so like was there a specific uh like idea that you were coming into that with or like an approach that you had or 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 what was the what was the thought process around that specifically um i mean to be honest like i talked i talked to jim mackey quite a lot at the time he was um uh, he was a, a great trainer at london so and he's now their behavior management officer um which that wasn't a job that existed at the time mm. but um i talked to him about it a lot just to get some advice um and sort of between us we came up with um different ways that we could get this monkey to allow being injected so frequently um basically we taught her that her criteria for us to proceed. So it's almost like teaching her a start button, you know, she almost mm. consented, yes, this is okay, before we then proceeded with the injection. And so we taught her a behavior where she would have to position herself against the mesh, hold on to a target with both hands, look towards us and push her body mm. into the mesh. And if she didn't do any of those things, we couldn't proceed with the injection. Or if she started out like that, and then as we moved the syringe, she backed away, we would have to stop. So we were doing like multiple training sessions a day um, and only injecting on one of them. And initially we were altering the time of the injection so that it wasn't nine o'clock in the morning. Every morning is when Mm. you get a needle stick. But we were sort of changing that depending on um, what, because we were doing urine testing as well to work out what her sugar levels were. And so we'd, in conjunction with the vets, devise a, a safe schedule for that but we'd still ask for that really high criteria on every single one of the training sessions so that we had consistency and she she was completely aware that we were injecting her you know we weren't just sneaking up and sticking her with the needle and going we'll deal with that tomorrow because we needed to have that relationship where she understood what was happening Hmm. because it was going to happen every day so you know we were also lucky that because we caught it relatively early she was on an oral medication as well so that was able to keep her levels in check while we were building up to being able to do this injection because mm. like so many animals you haven't got the medical behavior trained before yeah. you need it yeah, yeah and then you need it right now so yeah <laughs> um so yeah so i always think you should definitely be training those husbandry behaviors before you need them yeah but unfortunately until you need them they're not a priority for sure yeah yeah far too busy aren't they so mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's interesting, sort of like introducing that um, aspect of like choice and control for the animal to, mm-hmm. to make mm-hmm. them a little bit more comfortable with the scenario. Um, yeah. Uh, another thing I wanted to talk to you about, because uh, this whole concept around like raptor training is is still like way more contentious than I feel like it should be. Because <laughs> if there's, there's anything that I've faced an unexpected, a disproportional amount of pushback in my career, it's been... Uh, so it's been surrounding, you know, positive reinforcement for, for raptors. And it's very, like, I, I grew up on a horse farm and my, most of my start as far as like my animal background was around horses and, uh, horse training. And that is horse training is, is basically the same as raptor training (laughs) and it's, uh, and it's still the same. And, and it's, and it's one of those industries that like, it's definitely catching on as far as positive reinforcement and, you know, like, uh, breaking a horse is, is, you know, there's, there's different ways to do it. And we understand there's, there's better ways to do it. 
Um, so I definitely saw a lot of parallels between the two. Um, Mm -hmm. how, how would like, say somebody is at a, at a facility right now that they're currently, you know, practicing more traditional Raptor training techniques and they want to sort of, uh, make it a little bit more modern as far as positive reinforcement. How would you recommend people start to do that? And what are the things that sort of differ between the two, um, techniques? Oh, that is a long answer. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good question. Um, uh, Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to change people's mindset. And that is one of the hardest things to do because you've got the army of people that say, yes, but this works. And Mm -hmm. it it works. Of course it works. So, you know, it's been being done for thousands of years Mm -hmm. and there is no argument that it works. Um, You have to have the want to do something different. Um, you also have to have a good trust account with your manager because Mm, your manager mm. has got to give you permission to try Mm. something different. Um, And that's, it's not always something that we have. And there's obviously there's ways to go about getting permission to do that. Um, And I would always suggest that you start with one bird that you think is going to be successful. So, you know, if you've got, um, a I know over in, um, so in the UK, all the owls that we use for any kind of programming, they're all always hundred, they're always imprinted, human raised owls, that's what we Mm -hmm. use. So there is very little need or want to ever tether an owl because it wants to fly to you anyway. So most of the time owls are housed in aviaries. Um, I know that's not the case over in the States and um, I'm not sure about Canada, but I know in the States Mm. there's a lot of uh, rehab owls um, that are used who I um, have not been raised by humans. Um, and so they are probably the worst candidate to start with. Um, if you happen to have a human raised owl in your collection and it's tethered, I would start with that bird because mm. that's going to be the easiest bird, the one that you're going to have the most success with the fastest. And really training is all about successive approximations, right? You know, we get reinforced for taking that first step. And if you can take a a few really easy steps to get success Mm. that means that your manager can see that you're being successful you get reinforced for the little steps that you've taken and once you've been successful with one bird it's going to be easier for you to say "Hmm, maybe do you think i could try this with somebody else um but you know don't run before you can walk certainly don't start with the bald eagle that's been tethered for 25 Mm -hmm. years that's probably not your not the bird that's going to give you success yeah (laughs) not going to put you in the right position um but really, I think like when people start moving into the environment of positive reinforcement, particularly for raptors, there are a lot of considerations that need to be undertaken, you know, like is your housing suitable for this bird to live free in it? Is it safe mm. for you and for the bird to live freely? Have you got a shift enclosure built in? Can you work on some voluntary box training before you even start free lofting your bird? Can you, instead of free lofting straight away, can you teach your bird to jump onto your glove instead of being picked up from the perch? Right. You know, Mm -hmm. these are all the small steps that you can start with. It makes your relationship with that bird much more on a voluntary basis. The bird has the power to say, yes, I'm going to come and interact with you or no. And if they say no, we have to respect that. No. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. That it's so important. If we're going to give our animals a choice, if they say no, we have to listen to that. And that might mean that that bird doesn't go on that program that day. Yeah which that's that's where having a good relationship with your manager comes into play because you have to be in a position where you can say to them do you know what like if we're going to do this differently if we're going to listen to our birds we need to listen to our birds and that's why if you start with one bird that you're sure you're going to have success with yeah when you then transition to other birds if you get one that says no you can use the one 
that has said yes that you've mm -hmm. already had success with um it's really it's a whole process there's also like so i'm i sit on the board of directors for the iwate um they have a mentorship program so you know through the professional development committee you can reach out to someone who can help mentor mm. you through the steps and talk about your enclosure and talk about how you might be able to change that to make it more suitable for the bird in question or you know how you can approach your manager even how you can have yeah. this conversation um but it's yeah it's <laughs> it's definitely not a short answer i'm afraid <laughs> yeah no absolutely yeah no that that's a, a great answer uh, i think i think yeah a lot of those uh scenarios like you really it's it's more about how you are approaching the human element of it than yeah. than the actual animal element because yeah it's uh, people get their hackles up quick, especially um, in in scenarios like this. And and you got to, uh, uh, you know, people aren't in this industry. They're coming from a good place, and it's not it's not necessarily because they think that your technique is wrong. It's just that mm -hmm. it's uncomfortable to also admit that the way you've been doing it is not necessarily the optimal way of doing it. And yeah, yeah, yeah. it's 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 very important to sort of approach things that way. Uh, and often people don't even know that there's another way to yeah, do something absolutely. or they don't know how it could work with the animals mm -hmm. they've got. They don't have the experience with it. They haven't, you know, ever met anybody that's done it before. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, it can, especially when it comes from younger staff members who have just been to a conference and seen this great talk about, oh, these people are doing this with all mm -hmm. of their birds and they go back and it can be quite threatening to managers um, mm -hmm. in that scenario. So. Yeah, hundred percent. And and I was totally in that position. Like when I transitioned from, uh, you know, more of a traditional like equine background to the zoo background. Like the first time I saw an animal like voluntarily walk on a trailer, I was just like, <laughs> "What?" Like because the amount of times that like you know, trailering horses that don't want to go on trailers is like terrifying for everybody involved. Yeah. Like it is, yeah. uh, you know, and it, you're just risking your life. It feels like, mm -hmm. and it's mm -hmm. and it's it's not a good scenario when you're using adversives with a fight or flight animal in a small area. Yeah. It is terrifying. Yeah. And to see an animal like being like, Oh yeah, I'll go on for like half a carrot and then <laughs> just doing it. And I was just like, that's, that's insane. Like I would, I remember that moment of just being like mm -hmm. absolutely shocked about with that, mm -hmm. you know? And I'm sure it's the same for when you get, uh, you know, a, a bird that's been tethered for a long time and, and being able to, it just voluntarily being like, I, I will choose to participate in this training yeah. and hop onto your glove, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and yeah, I think, absolutely. I think there's a lot of, uh, like accrediting bodies now that are introducing, um, sort of standards around choice and control. And I don't think a lot of these, uh, you know, sort of traditional raptor training techniques are really going to fit that category anymore. Like it's something that's sort of currently being overlooked as far as choice and control with ambassador animals and all this stuff. And I, I don't think that's going to be the case for very much longer. And I think that this is, you know, something that a lot of people are going to be in, in this scenario where they're starting be like, yeah. okay, well now we can't use these methods. Like what are the, what are the other methods? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I ran a whole online course about how to transition your birds. Excellent. With uh, with Cassie Molina, who uh, also used to work for uh, for Natural Encounters. Actually, she's now got her own business. So, um, but you know, there are resources out there, and there are people out there available to help you. And you know, there's people that can do that virtually and in person. And ask questions, reach out. If that's a decision that you want to make, mm. if you want to start changing something, then there are definitely people that can help you do it. Yeah. And, and you mentioned uh, telemetry. Is that just uh, like basically adding a tracker to the bird so you can find it if it flies away? 
Yeah, basically. So um, the uh, you basically you can attach a, a telemetry to either to a leg mount. You know, if they've got anklets on still, then you can attach it there. You can put it onto a tail feather. You can put a backpack on, um, mm. which is great. I love a backpack because then you train your bird to stand still to allow you to turn the telemetry on and off as well. Mm. And mm. you can leave them on all the time and just turn them on and off with a magnet. Um, and it just gives you like an extra layer of safety. So you're, but yeah. your bird isn't isn't restrained in any way it can do whatever it wants to do but if it disappears out of view and you're not entirely sure where it's gone you can turn on your transmitter and you go oh hang on a minute you're over there somewhere mm. and off you go there's some brilliant technology out there now as well like mm -hmm. there's gps trackers that show you how high your bird is and oh, wow. you know how far away it is and which direction mm. it's heading in and all the rest of it so yeah um yeah there's some really cool, uh, Very cool. technology out there yeah that's really neat so um uh, you have this company now, uh, Shaping Behavior, where, uh, mm -hmm. you know, you you do sort of, uh, you know, training consultant uh, consultancy and uh, a, a sort of approach a lot of these problems that people are having in institutions. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, what do, what do these consulting sessions usually look like? And do you do you sort of have uh, common things that you're brought in for? Like, is there something that a lot of people are struggling with that they need a sort of training consultant to, to help them work through? Um, to be honest with you, every session is different, <laughs> um, which is how I like it, really. Um, every mm -hmm. facility has got different needs and some places have got really experienced staff who are just struggling to problem solve one particular thing. Um, and other places have got less experienced staff and they just need all like sort of all over staff training so mm. that they can help to improve the welfare of the animals in their care. Um, so my consults, you know, I've got a few regular clients that I go to. I always do a combination of like, some practical things where we go out, we see the animals that they are training already or that they want to start training and we do a training session we'll you know oh this is the problem that we're having we're hitting this point and we can then talk about ways that they could problem solve that um or they want to start training something so you know i'm like right okay well this is how i would probably start that and sort of talk them through how to do that sometimes we do a session there and then um i'll always do some classroom based bits as well because i think it's really important to make sure that everybody has got a strong foundation and that they understand like you know if i'm using terminology i want to be sure that what i'm saying is actually being understood mm. there's no point in me standing there and talking oh yeah when it does this i want you to do this and we don't do that because that would be aversive and actually if if the way that i'm explaining it is a, a way that they've not they've not heard that language before mm. then i don't want people to just agree because i'm there and then mm. i leave and they go what on earth was she talking about yeah. So yeah, I always like to make sure that people have got like a strong foundation, they understand mm -hmm. the principles behind positive reinforcement and um and equally, you know, the the damaging things around negative reinforcement and positive punishment, you know, like yeah. and why we why we don't opt to use those strategies when we start mm -hmm. training our animals, um, and how we're always, you know, trying to build that relationship and how it actually doesn't have to be as complicated as sometimes it can be made out to be. Um mm -hmm. I do a lot of work in antecedent arrangement. Um big fan changing your antecedents you know uh, i think susan friedman says to change behavior change conditions mm. um and you know obviously susan friedman is a legend yeah. um <laughs> but you know she couldn't be more right because actually if you look at like a lot of what i do i stand back and i look at the big picture i call it um because when you're training even experienced trainers 
they get stuck in there i'm doing this and the animal does this and they're not seeing everything that's going on around mm. them so a lot of the time i just stand back and say do your training session and i'll watch and afterwards i'll say do you reckon if we what if we tried it here or mm. did you notice that other animal over there that's, you know, in, it potentially interfering with something? Or hmm, when you're right there, the sun's like glinting right mm. on top of mm. the, the target or whatever it is. Um, and sometimes we can change or fix uh, a, a behavior just by changing the antecedent environment. And I do I do a lot of that, really, yeah. um, which is great because it gives the person doing the training like just another tool and it makes them successful really quickly you know if it mm. if it is as simple as standing over here and the animal approaches you then actually why wouldn't you do your training sessions over there and you've got half the battle yeah. so yeah i think you know we're always looking for our animals or our learners to be successful and uh, that means making it as easy as possible for them to do the thing that we want them to do mm -hmm. and that is all in the antecedents so that's yeah. that's where i come down a lot <laughs> yeah absolutely i i think uh um yeah, it's, it's so important to be, to be able to take that sort of step back because you know, it happens all the time. Like even outside of a training session or anything like that, like you get a seasonal keeper in or something and they're like, why do you, why do you do that? Or like, why is mm -hmm. this like this? Or why is this here? Mm -hmm. And then you go, I have, I have no idea. I pass it every <laughs> single day. I've never thought about it before, you know? And I think yeah. that is such an important practice to be able to, mm -hmm. uh, you know, as often as possible, just take a step back and try to be that third party because yeah, yeah honestly it, it's, it, people aren't even looking for f like for solutions necessarily. They're mm -hmm. just looking for like that sort of view in a lot of these scenarios and being yeah. able to just take somebody that hasn't, mm -hmm. that doesn't have the same sort of bias as they do in that scenario. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's so important. And videoing training sessions is mm. invaluable because so I've, I've recently um, just started working with a, a private horse client, actually, you know, mm. we were talking about horses, um, somebody who really wants to use positive reinforcement with their yeah. young, their youngster. Um, and it's great. I'm absolutely mm. loving it. And I'm so happy that, that yeah. I get to work with her. Um, but I've been videoing little snippets of my sessions, partly so I can share them with the owner who isn't there when I'm doing the training so that they know what I'm doing, but also so that I can see where I could do things differently. And actually, yesterday I did a session there and I looked back at my videos and I went, oh, I need to change my timing mm. because I don't think she's aware of what I'm asking her to do when I ask it. And so and that's just something that, you know, I'm instinctively training this horse and I look back at my video and go, oh, do you know what? I'm not being as clear as I could be in my communication. And mm -hmm. it's it's so helpful for trainers of every level to have their sessions filmed or have somebody come and watch you and just pick out little things like that, because I wouldn't have noticed that had I not filmed it and I'd have kept doing it the same way. And at some point I'd have hit a wall where the horse was no longer doing what I wanted mm. and I'd be wondering why. So because I've noticed it after just, just yesterday's session, I can change my criteria tomorrow when I go back. Yeah. Yeah. That, no, that's such a fantastic, uh, training tool, uh, like communication tool, because, uh, I, I don't know if this is your experience, but like when I've done consulting for other facilities for like different welfare and enrichment projects, I, I find a disproportionate amount of time where like the issue that they're facing or like the challenges that they're having are more people and team dynamic related challenges mm -hmm. than they are the actual scenario that they're in. Like, because a lot of the time, like somebody has already solved the specific animal 
scenario mm-hmm. that you're in. Like somebody has trained this macaque to do this thing or, or, you know, st- stopped it from pacing or, or done this thing, but mm-hmm. it's your team that is the sort of yeah. unique scenario there. And I find like, I spend a disproportionate amount of time trying to address those sort of communication issues and the dynamics that are happening in the team. Is that your sort of experience as well? Yeah. I mean, people are definitely the hardest animal to train. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But, you know, but we're also the ones who, you know, it should be easiest to communicate with because Mm. we can explain why we need people to change their behavior rather Mm. than just working on, you know, with animals and body language. Um, But yeah, I definitely, I think that consistency among team members is so difficult to achieve. So having everybody start out with that same foundation on the same page and nobody battling against wanting to do something the old way, um, you know, like that really helps. Like if you get everybody on board, everybody wants to do the best that they can for their animals. Mm-hmm. And if you can show them how well that works. Um, and most of my work now is teaching the team rather than teaching the animals because yeah. with a lot of the time I go into a place, I don't have a relationship at all with those animals. Mm-hmm. And so I'm working with the, the team mm-hmm. and, I help the team to do better rather than me being the one who's doing the training. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, absolutely. The the team side of it and team building and making sure that everyone is communicating effectively is a huge part of my job. Yeah. And, and, and I feel like in just animal care in general, like creating that mm-hmm. sort of environment where you can, uh, you know, have conversations that shouldn't be difficult, but become difficult if you don't have the right sort of environment. Like if you noticed, yeah. like, the inconsistencies in, in, uh, your, your bridging and, and, and your sort of different, uh, like your antecedents, like if somebody is training, you know, the behavior over here and somebody else is training it over here, like you're noticing those things. Those are, those should be easy conversations for you to be like, Hey, I've done it this way. And I'm actually finding it like really working over here or like I'm doing this and it's really working. And like, maybe, maybe you should try this as opposed to like, if those conversations aren't happening, that becomes like a sort of immediate, like defensive, like, Oh, this person's trying to think they think they're better than me. And like all those kind of things. And like, when there's an environment like that, like you're not going to get anything done and you're not going to be able to problem solve anything ever. Like it's just going to be hard no matter what you do. Yeah, we really need to make sure that we're creating like safe spaces for mm-hmm. our team members and, you know, have an environment where people are, they they feel comfortable to ask a question and, you know, and not fear getting into trouble if they're doing something mm. which is perhaps different to what someone else is doing um and that you know that can be one of the hardest things really to achieve um so it, sometimes what i do i like to do uh, little training games and team building games and things maybe even before we build up to having those conversations mm. so that it's broken the ice a little bit it's got everybody having a bit of fun and you know put everyone in a different scenario and then then when everybody's feeling a little bit more relaxed, then we can go, right, okay, so let's talk about this thing that's happening. Mm. None of you are wrong, but you're all doing it differently and we need to come to a consensus because it's confusing for the animal. Mm. You can use training games to show how that might, like the situation that might put an animal in. Obviously, we don't know what an animal is thinking, but, you know, if you put a person in a situation and have three different people all train the same behavior in a different way, Mm. that person can say, well, actually, I didn't have a clue. I, I feel like I was meant to be doing the same behavior because the mm. cues were kind of the same, but also there were differences. And sometimes something like that can really help the team to understand the differences in what they're doing and the way they're doing it might be confusing to that animal. What uh, is there a sort of specific training game that you've 
found that's like very useful or is it uh, typically like different people trying to like non-verbally train something or how, well, what does the training game actually look like? Uh, I love training games. I play them all the time with mm. everybody, like everywhere I go, we have to do some kind of training game. Um, but they're, they're different all the time because I think um, sometimes I'll literally do things where I'm just teaching somebody or the, the group, the mechanics of a bridge and a reinforcer, you know, and delivery of that reinforcer, because the way that we deliver reinforcers and the contiguity in which we deliver reinforcers after a, a bridge is sounded, whether that's a clicker or a whistle or the word good mm. or thumbs up or whatever kind of bridge you want to use, um, you know, delivering that reinforcer in a timely, concise fashion straight after that um, bridge has sounded or been shown is something that a lot of people struggle with. Mm. It, even the mechanics of you've dished out a reinforcer, get the next one ready so that you're ready to go. Mm. So, you know, sometimes I'll do like games like that all the way up to like groups of people where you've got multiple trainers and one animal or multiple animals and one trainer. Um, I just, I, I change it up all the time, depending on the experience level of the people in the room that I'm working with, what we did the last time that I was there, you know, what, what particular thing they're trying to work on with an animal that a game might be really useful for. Mm. Um, they're really good for, for teaching how to build duration as well, especially if you brief the, uh, the person who's playing the animal, you know, mm. mm-hmm. <laughs> and you give them a few tips um, because then the, the trainer has really got to think about how they would react if the animal did this in, in a real scenario. Um, and another good one is if you, you know, if you tell your animals to be, um, um, sort of fearful of the trainer and like not want to interact with the trainer at all because then the trainer has got to start by reinforcing like even just a glance in their direction mm. and that can be really useful for if someone's working with a group of animals and those animals don't want to come anywhere near you like it can be really helpful for them to see that in like a person environment and make progress in mm. oh, they normally only last about three minutes like i'm <laughs> like quick right. come on another one um but it, you know it can be really useful for them just to sort of learn what techniques they could put into practice with the animals they're working with and mm. it's a safe space you know like it doesn't matter if they make a mistake because it's only another person you know it's a yeah. member of their team and they're going to have a laugh about it afterwards they're not going to risk damaging a relationship with their animal mm. mm-hmm. yeah that's that's uh that's super interesting i'd uh love to try some of those out. That's, uh, yeah, yeah that's a great idea. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, with shaping behavior, you've done a lot of consulting. Do you have a sort of, you know, a recent project or anything or, uh, that really comes to mind when, uh, you know, you're thinking about like what the mission of the company is, or like, do you have a sort of exemplary project that you'd, that you'd sort of like to go over? Um, I mean, I've got a few. <laughs> um, so one that's at the forefront of my mind is uh, I consult for a place called Zoomarine um, in Portugal. Um, I go there twice a year for a week at a time. And I'm mm. actually I'm going next week, which is why it's oh, at the fantastic. forefront of my mind, because I'm just preparing content there. Um, it, they're a, a really big park that they've got marine mammals, but also a large bird team. Um, I only work with the bird team. Um, but basically, most of the team there they've all been there for quite a long time they're all really very skilled trainers they've got a few newer members of the team who haven't been there for as long um but who was who have learned a ton in the time that they've been there and they're all doing really well um and what i love about working with zoomarine is that even though these people have got a lot of training skill and they're doing some really cool stuff they always want to know if they can do it better 
Mm. They're always saying, hey, Nikki, come, come and look at this. Um, hey, we're going to send you a video of this. Like, do you see anything that we could improve? Do you see anything that we could help the animal to understand what it is that we're asking? You know, they, they mm. really want to do things absolutely at the very top of their game. Um, and I love the fact that I get to work with people and that's the way that they approach it. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody's threatened by the fact that I'm there. They all look at me going as an opportunity for them to do something better for the animals that they're working with. And yeah. I love that because they're a brilliant bunch and I get to have a lot of fun with them when I go mm. and hang out there as well. Hang out, sorry, work. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, that's that's always a really I mean, it's it's long days and we talk about training from the moment that i get there until the moment i get into bed that night Mm. you know so it's it is um fantastic but draining Um, (laughs) but it's a brilliant time and i love going out there so that's twice a year um and then i've actually recently been doing some work with college collections here in the uk Mm. um so we have a huge number of animal care courses um, that are on offer, animal management, animal care and science, things like that, where, you know, the students come from all the way from like A-level um, all the way up to university students. And they go to these colleges which have animal collections. Some of them have got zoo licenses because they've wow. got so many animals they are open to the public. Um, but I've recently and this was an accident. This wasn't in my business model. Um, but I was asked to present at a few conferences that um, educators and course managers came to. And so I've been approached to go and do in-house workshops for the staff, which is great because I get to work with the people who are gonna be teaching the next generation mm. of people coming through mm-hmm. those college courses who are gonna be going out into industry. Um, and it's a really cool way for me to make an impact because a lot of the people who are working there, it's quite a few years since they went through their college course and the information that they have is maybe not the most up to date. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I am working there and doing CPD, continuing professional development for the staff, that means that I get the opportunity to share the most up to date, best practice knowledge with those staff members who then take that, put it into practice with the animals but also teach the students mm-hmm. the most up-to-date and current information. So that's something which um, was an accident, but I'm actually quite excited to be doing. Um, and I've worked with quite a few big colleges and their animal collections here in the UK so far. So that's that's something that's fun to do. Yeah, that's fantastic. That seems to be one of the major differences in, uh, at least from like the education and qualification standpoint between the UK and Canada. I don't know mm-hmm. what it's like in the in the US, but uh, there's a lot of animal care. Like that seems to be like a qualification. Like if you want to be a zookeeper, like you go to an animal mm-hmm. care college and that's not at all the case here. Like I, I've met zookeepers from all sorts of different backgrounds educationally. Um, but yeah, it seems to, that seems like a really cool project to sort of be, uh, be working on and something that would really make, make a difference in the, in the long run. And it's, it's, uh, you know, probably interesting sort of working in the education side of things. And, and this maybe leads into my next question, but like, if you were to sort of take a step back from the industry, like where do you see the areas of advancement and uh, where do you see the industry sort of going in the next sort of five to 10 years in relation to like training and animal welfare and, and things like that? Where do you see the next sort of final frontier of, of all this happening in the next five to 10? Um, I mean, I just hope that every zoo, or I think every zoo should have a 
you know, a behavior management coordinator mm. or training coordinator, whatever you want to call them, somebody who makes sure, you know, that person is as up to date as possible on their CPD. They know the current best practice. They've sought, you know, the best information and talked to lots of different professionals and they're qualified to then be making sure that the teams in zoos are qualified and all using mm. the same positive reinforcement science-based methods you know things that we've proven work on every species um and that it's um collaborative you know within within not just each zoo but within zoos across the country and i mean eventually the world that'd be the dream wouldn't it mm -hmm. but we'll probably probably never get to that point <laughs> but you know have people talking to each other and not afraid to share information and share their successes but also their failures yeah. because nobody learns nobody learns a better way unless people talk about the things that they did that didn't work out and I think that's something that's really important to do like not beat yourself up about a mistake but go do you know what this is the way that I approached it it didn't work for me this is what I've learned from that and now we do it like this so mm. that somebody else doesn't have to make the same mistakes um but yeah I think probably we want everybody to have a better understanding of what animal training and really what behavior management is like a lot of the stuff that I do is it's more about the way that we work with our animals mm -hmm. and you know respecting that our animals have the right to say no to something and yeah. not forcing them into situations where they have to escalate their behavior to make us back off because we didn't listen when they tried to communicate they were uncomfortable um I would just like everybody to be more aware of that and having welfare really guide us in our mm. best practice like just because something is effective does it mean it's ethical you know um again uh, susan friedman like uh, effectiveness is not enough i think she said mm. you know and, mm -hmm. and she's right there like i said earlier on with falconry and the negative reinforcement practices surrounding that and horse training just mm. because it works does that make it okay we, we don't know what our animals are thinking or feeling, yeah. but we can put ourselves in a situation where we would rather be taught something in a particular way. Mm -hmm. And actually, why would it be any different for our animals? Yeah. So I think, yeah, a better understanding and respect for our animals and somebody that is responsible for coordinating that across all zoos. Basically, make it so that I don't need to exist anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I think yeah, what, what, that's it's so important. Like the the whole aspect of of really sharing, and there, there's lots of zoos that are becoming like very transparent. And and mm. in my experience, like you know, I, I talk to people all the time for this podcast, and I reach out to people all the time. And everybody, once they get an email asking a question, they're like, "Oh yeah, absolutely, I will put in a an absorbent amount of time into this project for completely free, and and I will chat to you all day long." Uh, about these kind of things. And, and I think uh, that's definitely not the industry as a whole, but I think there's a it's definitely becoming more and more uh, something that, that people are, are wanting to do. And I think people are seeing the benefits of that because no matter how big your facility and how uh, prestigious your, your, your zoo is or whatever, there's going to be scenarios that you're going to run into that other people have figured out and that other people are doing better. And like spending a, a, too much staff time and, and, and everybody thinking about a problem that somebody else has solved is just, is just silly. We don't have time for this. Like yeah. there's so much <laughs> as far as animal welfare that we don't understand. Like we can't waste yeah. time solving problems that people have already solved. You know, mm -hmm. we have to be Absolutely. talking to each other and, 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 you know, really trying to push the envelope collectively mm -hmm. as, as an industry, not as specific zoos, you know? Yeah. 
yeah share share your successes share your failings i think that's important as well so yeah yeah absolutely absolutely. so uh you know uh, with a sort of a a closing question here uh if there was a poster that you could put up in every sort of animal care facility uh, that everyone would sort of actually have to read uh what's what would it say and 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 why would it say that um what would it say I think probably something that I've already said today, which is just because we can, does that mean we should? Mm. Like Something like that, because I would like to think that that makes people think about what they're doing and that maybe there's another way. And really that's, that's what we should all be doing all the time. You know, mm-hmm. like we're scientists, right? Behavior science. Okay. So science evolves all the time, even things that we did, Okay, so definitely things that we did 20 years ago, we're not doing anymore. Mm -hmm. Things that we did 10 years ago, a lot of people are not doing anymore. Things that we did a year ago, you know, Mm -hmm. in some cases, we'd be going, do you know what? Maybe there's a better way. And that's what we should always be doing. Like, we always need to be, like, trying to figure out if there is a better way of doing the thing that we need to do. There's no, no doubt that things need to be done. And our animals do need medical and healthcare, and we can't talk to them and explain to them exactly what we're going to do and why, but we can think about the way that we communicate to them and the way that we do the things that we need to do, mm-hmm. give our animals a voice, basically. Yeah, absolutely. That's, uh, that's huge. Um, so uh, where can people uh, see what you're up to and, and follow you and see some of your, your resources and uh, where, can, where can people keep up with you? Uh, okay, so social media is a great place to start. So I have a Facebook page called Shape and Behaviour. I have a Facebook group called Shape and Behaviour as well, which I must get better at posting in. Um, <laughs> and I have an Instagram account, which is at Nikki Shaping Behaviour. Um, I think you've got my email somewhere, which mm. is just Nikki at shapingbehaviour.com. And there's a website as well, So, um, which is shaping behavior um, so, <laughs> i mean it's fairly easy there's a thing yeah yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah basically i'm happy to talk to anybody you can reach out to me on social media and drop me a message i try and share training videos i usually share them on my instagram account and then like share them from there to mm, facebook mm-hmm. um just because i find it more user-friendly yeah. um but yeah so i try to be relatively active on there um so it's hard social it. media is hard to maintain that's the one really thing is. that was very surprising to me about this whole thing i was like i always i'm yeah. like oh my instagram page that i haven't logged into a month for a month what am yeah. i doing yeah <laughs> yeah it's, it's definitely hard and it is time consuming and what mm. i need to do is give myself like half a day once a month and schedule posts yes i don't do that yes yes <laughs> i literally post something after i've done something cool and then go mm. huh nobody saw that oh that's because i posted it yes. at 10 o'clock at night that was i <laughs> i also have a graveyard of uh social media spreadsheets and and planned things that i am mm-hmm. it's, Never yeah yeah it's 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 tough but uh yeah, I will link everything in the show notes so people can uh, uh, check out your website and, and some of your fantastic uh, resources. Um, uh, I would definitely recommend it. It's uh, you're, You have some excellent pages. Um, but uh, Nikki, thank you so much for coming on. This was a fantastic conversation. Uh, I think there's so much to, uh, to talk about and probably a lot to talk about uh, in the future as well. So uh, <laughs> thank you so much for, for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. It's been great. You've had some good questions and hopefully I haven't bored your audience too much. Ah, uh, No no (laughs) risk of that. So uh, thank you so much. uh, And for everybody listening uh, until next time. We hope you enjoyed that episode of the Wild Enrichment Podcast. If you want to follow us on social media, you can find us at Wild Enrichment on Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest. 
If you want to learn more about Wild Enrichment and see some of our great resources, check out www.wildenrichment.com. Also, if you wish to support Wild Enrichment, check out our Patreon. Again, thank you so much for listening. Until next time. Wild Enrichment is independently owned and claims no affiliation to any zoo, aquarium, or other animal care institutions. All of the information and opinions communicated through this podcast, wildenrichment.com, and affiliated social media accounts are based on my own opinions and experiences and are not in any way reflective of the opinions of my employers past or present. Thank you.